A Freedom of Information Act request by a reporter seeks four years' worth of federal contractor reports. Now, companies would have filed the reports, and they concern their equal opportunity hiring records, with the Office of Federal Contractor Compliance Programs at the Labor Department. The information could be confidential, and contractors have just a few weeks to file an objection with OFCCP. We get more now from Palero Mazza attorney Kevin Barnett. Mr. Barnett, good to have you on. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about, first of all, what reports that go to OFCCP specifically is this reporter asking for. And it's not a federal news network reporter, by the way. This is a different news organization. So federal contractors with more than 50 employees and contracts worth more than $50,000, as well as first-tier subcontractors that meet those benchmarks, have to file what are referred to as EEO-1 reports. And there are multiple types of them, but the ones at issue here are the type two consolidated reports. And they reveal the demographic information for the entire workforce. So the form will have about a dozen different job categories, and you need to list how many male employees fall within different demographic categories and how many female employees fall within different demographic categories for your organization. And when you say demographic categories, does that refer to just male or female, or does it refer to different racial? No, that refers to race and ethnicity ethnicity as well. Okay. So they want four years' worth of these from the Office of Federal Contractor Compliance Programs, and the OFCCP has put in a Federal Register notice notifying contractors of this. Is that a usual procedure? I wouldn't call it usual, but when federal agencies are faced with FOIA requests, For contractor information, they are required to provide notice to that contractor. Typically, they can just send a letter to that one contractor. When it involves 15, 20, 100, in this case, 15,000 contractors, sending out letters just isn't practical. So they use the Federal Register notice. This is the first time I've seen OFCCP use this method, but I've seen other agencies use it sporadically over the years. Right. So what is OFCCP asking of the contractors through this uh, federal register notice? So FOIA, you know, it's this amazing statute that allows anyone in the public to ask for any record held by a government agency. And the agency has to turn that record over unless the information falls within one of nine statutory exemptions. One of those exemptions, Exemption 4, allows the government to withhold information that is confidential commercial, or financial information. So the Federal Register requests provides this notice to the general public that your information may be released and it may contain confidential commercial information. If you want the agency to withhold it, you need to respond and explain to the agency why that information is treated confidentially, why it qualifies as commercial, um, and the other different elements that the agency is going to need to prove to entitle it to withhold it. In your view, this particular information commercial? I I think it's definitely commercial, although in most FOIA requests that address uh, Exemption 4, whether the information is commercial or not is really easy to establish. Um, Pricing information, contract information, obviously that's commercial. Here it's a little bit more difficult um, because you have this demographic information about your workforce. This same FOIA requester submitted a similar FOIA request a few years ago and litigated it, and the Northern District of California actually said this information was not commercial. So that is going to be a more difficult showing here in light of that decision. 
Although, frankly, I think the Northern District of California got the issue of commercial and competitive harm a little conflated. And I don't think the agency made as many robust arguments as possible, possibly taking for granted that this information was going to be seen as commercial. We are speaking with Kevin Barnett. He's an attorney with the law firm Palero Mazza. In Palero Mazza's view, in your view, then, should contractors object to this FOIA request? And let me ask you a further question. Is the sense that proprietary information will be released that could be used by competitors? Or is the fear that somehow this reporting group will take this data and, with a preconceived notion, prove that all contractors are biased organizations? Well, I think that most companies should file an objection to the disclosure of this information, provided that the company actually treats this information as confidential. There are some companies that proactively tout their diversity statistics and will publish this information or will publish very similar information in press releases. And, you know, that's great. At the same time, not every company does that. And those that do keep it confidential often do so for very important reasons. A lot of my clients are small or smaller businesses, and the type of information you can glean from these reports, particularly year over year, actually have a a lot of competitive value. If you know a company has, you know, 120 employees in 2016 and 2017, and then you can also find on publicly available sources that they landed a big service contract in 2018, and now they're up to 214 employees. Well, now instantly you know that that service contract has, you know, I forget my numbers now, but you know, about 85 FTEs assigned to it. And that's a valuable competitive advantage when that contract comes up for recompete. And at this point though, contractors have no recourse to protect their information if that FOIA request is granted. They can't withdraw the reports or take some other measure to hide the information. So they can't withdraw the reports and it's required by contract and by statute to submit those reports. So they can't stop submitting them. However, at the same time, if the Department of Labor were to reject the objections and say that they're going to publish the reports, contractors would have the option of going to file their own lawsuit to prevent the disclosure under the uh, Administrative Procedures Act. Right. And let me ask you this. If someone files an EEO-1, the consolidated report, and is it ever possible for OFCCP, in its wisdom, to determine that there is bias at a contractor? I mean, what do they do with the reports ordinarily besides just file them and compile them and then maybe shield them from FOIA? Well, they're part of a much larger filing, and OFCCP will use that to identify whether the contractor is meeting its minimal requirements under its affirmative action regulations. I think how aggressive OFCCP is in using that information varies from administration to administration. And, and you know, I'm sure a lot of commenters will have opinions on whether they use it aggressively or too aggressively. But on the other hand, you could say then that if the information has been filed with the federal government and the government hasn't done anything to a particular company, then who else is to judge whether that company is compliant or not? If in the government's wisdom, imperfect as it might be in getting to all these 15,000 reports, that nothing happened. So who's an external party to say, well, you should have gone after this company? Yeah, I'm not sure that you know, we need a, a private attorney general to be prosecuting every federal government regulation, in particular, where 
the flip side of having a private attorney general duplicate the work of the agency could have competitive harm to the company, where, of course, if we just have OFCCP police it, you wouldn't have that same competitive harm aspect. I don't think that really makes sense. All right. And so what is the deadline to file with the Federal Register those objections? Contractors must file by September 19th in response to the Federal Register notice. OFCCP has set up a portal so you can file your objections there. Um, They also have an email address to file your objections in that manner. Um, We'll we'll see. I I think, fingers crossed, that the portal doesn't crash uh, as it gets closer to the deadline. All right. Kevin Barnett is an attorney with the law firm Polero Mazzo. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his advisory and to the Federal Register notice at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Request the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. 
I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, 
is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.